This is the Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to the Hindu's Books podcast. I'm Anand Krishnan, your host for today. In this episode, we are joined by Rahul Sagar, the author of To Raise a Fallen People, How 19th Century Indians Saw Their World and Shaped Ours. This is a fascinating collection of essays from leading Indian thinkers about a critical but often ignored period in India's intellectual history. And, as the author argues in the book, a seminal moment in how Indians came to think about India's place in the world. Indian views on foreign policy, diplomacy, strategic thought from this period tend to remain largely absent in most discussions on Indian thought. But as we will discuss today, the late 19th century in many ways offers a crucial lens in making sense of how and why Indian diplomacy came to be what it is today. With that, thank you so much, Rahul, for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Anand. To begin with, Rahul, just to give our listeners an idea of how this book came about, can you just share a little bit about your own work and what sort of drew you to look at writings of Indians who were living in the late 19th century? Yeah, it's a, it was a long and winding journey. I'm broadly interested, I, I study intellectual history or political theory, and I'm broadly interested in the idea of executive power. How do people make decisions when they're in position of, positions of power, and particularly when they can't be easily evaluated or overseen by others? My, my interest in this area was actually first directed towards the US. I studied how American intelligence worked, how was it overseen? How did the presidency make very critical decisions without anyone really being able to evaluate or hold them accountable? So what made them function well? And having looked at the American context, I became interested in wanting to also then see, of course, naturally see how India handled the same question and other countries in East Asia. All of these, what, what all of them had in common, Singapore, India, and the US, they all are democracies of various kinds, uh, but they all have extremely efficient, strategic executive branches. And so I wanted to see, you know, what makes them tick? How do they work? How do they make their choices? What frames their decisions? When I started to look at the Indian case, I quickly realized I, I looked at India's nuclear weapons program. I looked at the foundations of modern contemporary Indian foreign policy. And I found very, very little written about where these ideas, where its principles, where its objectives were coming from. In the US, there's a very vast literature on what are called the sources of foreign conduct. Uh, what makes a country uh, tick? Uh, what are its broad objectives, its broad aims and goals? And then you look at the strategies or tactics it takes. But I couldn't find that in the Indian case. And so that's what got me started on this idea of trying to find the foundations of India's thinking about the world. So this book is obviously a collection of essays written by prominent Indian thinkers and writers who I'm sure many of our listeners will immediately recognize because many of these were towering figures in late 19th century uh, India. But uh, you make an interesting point in your introduction that kind of sets up the whole book and sets up the collection is, which is that, you know, when we look at the origins or the kind of defining values of Indian thought, you look at post-1947, or you look at, you know, Chanakya and going, going back to a much earlier sort of period in India's history, 
but you make the case for why this late 19th century period was was very sort of influential in everything else that was to come later. So can you tell us a little bit about what was it about this period in India's history in terms of its political climate, in terms of its social climate that kind of made it so important and impactful? Yeah, you're, you, you set it up exactly right. I think there's a, there's a paradox and that paradox is what got me working in this particular, on this particular century. So when you try and look around for what I was describing as the foundations of Indian thinking about the world or Indian worldviews, you get these two polar responses. Uh, everything is post-1947, so people tend to focus very much on particular figures, whether it's Nehru or Indra Gandhi or Narasimha Rao. They tend to focus on prime ministers, by and large, or they have this reference to this very broad, vague idea of an ancient conception of statecraft. And Chanakya is the figure that's usually cited, though actually the literature, I'm, I'm, I look at it very carefully in, in forthcoming work as well. There's a large corpus of literature, but it's more than, even the earliest cases are six or 700 years ago, and most of them are about 2000 years ago. So, the, you know, the puzzle is if this stuff from ancient India is efficacious today, if it's, if it's meaningful today, then we all ought to be reading these texts, appreciating them, citing them. There's work that's been done, for example, in China, talking about the importance of military classics in China and how they're taught and drilled and uh, studied in military academies and so on. But we don't have something similar in the Indian context. So it doesn't seem that that could be the thing that drives our decision since 1947, then it would be hard to explain all the changes. That's the reason why, because the ancient past seemed too far away and the contemporary period seemed too messy or prone to change. I, I wanted to look somewhere further back to try and understand, surely there must be something more modern, but not just from the contemporary period. And when I started digging into the archives, what I realized was this is true for both domestic as well as international politics the foundational ideas that we started discussing in, in the 20th century that most Indians take for granted when they think about liberal democracy or citizenship or voting, none of these things were actually a given until the turn of the century. They were debated, worked out, evaluated, criticized in the 19th century. And the particular reason why the 19th century then ends up being important is, I'd say, two key things that change at the beginning of the 19th century that then shape everything that comes after it. The first is the introduction of modern or European or English education. It's described in various ways at the beginning of the, the 19th century, but it, it is a profound moment of change and transformation in how Indians think about politics, society, and economics. And with all of that about the, about the broader world that they're situated in. There's a kind of fundamental realization that the world has moved, Europe has moved substantially ahead, particularly in the sciences, and that without equaling those, those achievements and catching up with them, uh, India will never really be able to do anything like uh, attain a degree of uh, sovereignty or independence. So the introduction of European education is the first big development. And the second one, is that once people begin to read and write in particularly in English, 
they become aware of how the public sphere operates. Most importantly in England, but they also gradually over the century become aware of how the public sphere operates in France and in the United States, especially by the end of the century. And what this does is, why this is so important for the book, why this is so important for contemporary India, is that once people become aware of how the public sphere works in, in, in England in particular, uh, there are journals, there are newspapers, there are periodicals, you debate ideas, you take positions, it's perfectly fine to disagree. There are ways of conducting arguments. You don't simply rely on authority or interpretation as it had been in the past, preceding centuries. You don't have sort of an authoritative account of a text and then that kind of settles matters. They, these things are open for debate. They also become much more aware of world events, facts, figures, those sorts of things. And this combination of both being better educated or equipped linguistically, analytically, et cetera, and having more access to information and forums at which to debate it. These two things come together to make the 19th century absolutely pivotal, absolutely vital. You can't understand why India chooses to be democratic if you don't look at the 19th century. That decision is made in 1895, more or less, that India is going to have something like a liberal democratic setup, exactly how voting will work out is not clear. But those decisions are made in the late 1890s, mid 1890s, that India is going to work on a constitutional basis. Those decisions are made in the 1880s and 1870s, when princely states and others like places like Mysore, et cetera, start to think about constitutional structures, Baroda, et cetera. So you, you really can't understand 20th century India without seeing how important and transformative the 19th century is. And it's a break. Prior centuries do not explain what happens in this one distinctive particular moment. And one of the debates that you sort of highlight is the fact that how there's this interesting ambivalence or of intention about how they look at the West. As you just said right now, on the one hand, you, there was a sense that you had to emulate or learn Western ideas if India was to modernize and progress. But then you also had lots of criticism of how, say, the British Empire was conducting itself and of this huge gap you know, between the values of the West and actually how they were being practiced on the ground. So can you speak a little bit about this kind of tension or ambivalence in terms of how they looked at what the West kind of came to symbolize? And I found it quite interesting because it's very much the very similar flavor of the kind of things you hear Indian foreign policy speaking about today. Yes, that's right. And I, I think they, they come out of the same route. It's the same issue underlying contemporary debates about the West in India as they were back then. So at the beginning of the 19th century, there's a short-lived debate between, you might say, modernizers and conservatives. This is very similar debate that happens, whether it's in China or in Japan. It's much more short-lived in India than it is in China, Japan, Korea, and other, other, other places in, in, in East Asia. The conservatives lose the debate very quickly. And the modernizers, you know, more or less identify themselves with this new emergent world of trade, commerce, education, connectivity, etc. Many of them travel abroad and so on. What happens is this relatively cohesive seeming group that's become dominant in the 1840s and 1850s in the middle of the 19th century, over the next 50 years becomes divided. One part of that group continues to believe in the idea of progress and cosmopolitanism uh, and 
human advancement, this grand idea of civilization. And, and you know, you can, you can, it's not hard to see where they come from. They're reading the great liberal texts. Many of them are lawyers, they're steeped in constitutionalism. Uh, many of them are journalists, and so they're well-traveled or widely aware of what's happening around the world. And so they stay with that idea that of, of having some hope or optimism. But as the century progresses, this half starts to decline. And the other half, which sees the West as basically failing to live up to its ideals, that portion begins to grow. And by the end of the, 20, uh, by the, end of the 19th century and the turn of the 20th century, we end up with this remarkable sort of turn or, or twist of fate that where we had once begun the 19th century with a great deal of conviction that the West and many Indian political leaders, figures, nation builders, as they were called at the time, were very optimistic about where colonialism would take them. And by the end of the 19th century, they're much more pessimistic after seeing the scramble for Africa, after seeing the, the contest between, uh, say, America and Japan, after seeing the, the opium trade and its impact on China, they become almost bitter. And this becomes very personal to them after they see what happens to Indian indentured labor and migrants, economic migrants, to, especially to Africa, but also somewhat to the Caribbean. But mostly the thing that strikes them most is, is migration to Africa and sort of immediate direct encounters with racism, system, systematic racism. All of this leaves them much less willing to believe that the West can live up to its ideals. And I think it's that sense of disillusionment that still lies at the root of contemporary Indian worries about the West, the sense that the West says one thing and does another. And, and, and you see that beginning very clearly in the 19th century. And if you read the speeches of the Indian National Congress in its first 15 years, it's in those 15 years, you can see the liberals fading away, being replaced by ever more unhappy, as they come to be called, radicals. Right. You have two chapters, one that looks at the racism in, in, that Indian settlers faced in South Africa, and then the other that I found really interesting was how Indians at the time were looking and reflecting on the opium trade and the way it would have this huge impact on China. Can you speak a little bit about both those specific sort of episodes and the legacies that they would have? And in the racism chapter, of course, you have, a, you have writings of Mahatma Gandhi, among others. So can you speak a little bit about how those two episodes came to have, you know, a, a very deep influence in puncturing this idea of, you know, superiority of liberal values of the West, etc.? Yeah, puncturing is actually just the right term to use. That that's exactly what happened. On on the question of on racism first, or the the experience of Indians as they start to travel overseas, you know, at the start of the nineteenth century, this is another aspect of the of the book. I talk about how rare it is for Indians to travel overseas. Even Indians in the military uh, resist being posted overseas. There are various British Indian or at that point uh, company forces. They try and levy troops to send them overseas, and troops often refuse because they have all sorts of restrictions relating to eating, dining, mingling, etc. And so there's, there's, you know, there's a very famous piece in British India in the, in the middle of the 19th century, published in something called the Saunders Monthly Magazine, where you know the, the members of the senior British military say, I don't know if you can rely on Indian troops to really do much overseas because they're so problematic to move around. So the number of Indians traveling overseas is quite small in the 19th century, in the first half of the 19th century. But once slavery is abolished, particularly British colonies, 
The British desperately need labor, and so they turn to India, where famine and poverty and drought are widespread, and they see this relatively pliant population that they can, that they can exploit, uh, treat almost as slaves without calling it slavery. And so then we get the beginnings, of course, famously of the indenture system. Starts out small, is prime in the beginning, primarily just in the Indian Ocean region. But then as the 1860s and 1870s roll around, the numbers rapidly increase and they cover both the Caribbean as far as the Pacific, South Pacific. But of course, the largest number go to places like South Africa. And now you have a sudden change. For generations, Indians have not left the subcontinent. And suddenly they're transplanted in all sorts of different regions in the world. And the most dramatic experience that they encounter is uh, in South Africa or the Southern Africa, let's put it that way, because there's a a different mix of regimes and rules. And as these indentured labor turn up in large numbers, they're followed shortly after by what are called free passengers. These are not people that are indentured. They're actually educated or wealthy or capable, kind of capable in a sense of being able to start businesses and enterprises. And they prove to be both very good at what they, what they do. They run very lean enterprises. And they have a kind of uh, captive audience, metaphorically and almost literally, in this indentured labor. This becomes a problem much more in Africa than it does in the Caribbean or the South Pacific, because in, in Southern Africa, there are Dutch and other English settlers who, are, who, who find this, this, the, the arrival of Indian traders challenging and worrying, especially in large numbers. There had been Indian traders sc scattered and settled throughout Eastern and Southern Africa, even in decades past, but nowhere near in the numbers that you see. And so this produces an economic, racial, social, political conflict between these free passengers and the local, broadly speaking, white population. So the conflict is not so much between indentured labor, who uh, are quite, in a sense, quite happy to settle in these, in these places. They are more able to, they, they get land when they finish their indenture, they get land, they're able to become self-sustaining farmers, et cetera, or start small enterprises. They're not the immediate source of conflict. It's the, they're not the ones that experience the conflict. It's the, it's the, it's the kind of more economically well-off settlers. And it's quite interesting that throughout the latter part of the 19th century in India, there's this debate about racism and what to make of it. People like Ramade, the, the great economist of the era, he says, look, this migration outwards is actually a good thing. People are going voluntarily. There are abuses in the system, but these are things that can be resolved, reformed, etc. What's important is people are traveling or people are choosing to go abroad of their own will. Uh, this stops them from suffering famine, etc. We're not likely to see rapid industrialization in India because the British don't like it. So at least this allows us to prevent suffering, to, uh, to reduce human suffering, let's, let's put it that way. And the, the indentured labor had a terrible life, but at least it wasn't famine. That was, that was uh, Ranade's view. But as these more economically well-off and well-connected figures begin to travel and settle in South Africa and experience racism because they're in more direct contact with the white population as, as, as potential peers, they begin to push back with the argument that we as the Queen's subjects, as British subjects, are to be treated just the same. As, as white subjects of the queen. And then you get this, this, this racial element being put front and center. And it becomes a centerpiece of the Indian National Congress right from the very beginning as uh, people read and, and hear about these stories from these well-connected migrants. And, and that sets this idea rolling, that sets this ball rolling that Indians are treated unfairly because of their race. And then that 
prophecy or that initial encounter comes true over the next two decades of the, the first two decades of the 20th century, when you get versions of the Asian Exclusion or Asiatic Exclusion Act or Indian Exclusion Acts in many British colonies in Australia, you get it in, in America and so on. So, so it becomes a, a running sore after that point. So that's the story with racism. On opium, it's a, it's a, it's a, a really fascinating, very under-researched, under-reported on aspect of the story. We know much more about what the British did when it comes to the opium trade and how they, they took over and exploited that trade and grew that trade, both in you know, leaving India and then, of course, how they you know, forced their way into China. All of this we know much more about. We know much less about Indian reactions to this trade. And what I wanted to try and show in the book, in this chapter on the, on the opium trade, is to show that Indians had more complicated views, more divided views than we often realize. We think, based on a handful of figures, most prominently Gotle, the, the great uh, liberal of the early 20th century, that Indians were uniformly opposed to the opium trade. And I wanted to point out that this was not always the case. I also wanted to point out that people like Tagore were not the only ones to oppose the opium trade. Indians opposed the opium trade from very early on. So the chapter tries to do two things. One more laudatory that Indians opposed the opium trade from very early on, and the other somewhat more critical and, and, and self-critical to point out that that was not uniform. Uh, let me say a little bit about just those two things uh, and, and just to clarify. One is that you know, the Indian opium trade is practically non-existent before the Portuguese turn up. Opium is used for medicinal purposes within India. It's the Portuguese and then the British watching the Portuguese, watching what the Portuguese do in Daman and Diu, they decide to copy that. And I discuss in the book how the opium trade grows. And Indians are not particularly the, the drivers of this, of this trade, but they certainly, places like Surat, Ahmedabad, Bombay, Calcutta are certainly beneficiaries of the trade. And people observe this. They, the Indian commentators, the very first English-educated Indians who begin to read critical reports of the opium trade, the very first English-educated Indians really start to make a mark around the 1820s. And by the 1830s, you already see them, especially in the 1840s when the opium wars come and get underway, you see them very viscerally upset at this, you know, on, in the morning they read Mill and in the afternoon they, they read about the, you know, the opium war. This leaves them really upset. That, that's why that term puncturing that you use is exactly right. And so you get these very strong remarks against what Britain is doing and regret at India's even vague involvement with this business. These voices are all shut out by the British. They completely prevent conversations of these kinds. Anyone who writes about this stuff is ejected and so on. So the, the conversation really dies down and Britain goes about its business in a sort of typically ruthless way. By the 1860s and 70s, that story changes because now there are far too many Indians that are educated. There are far too many journals. There are far, far too many Indians now traveling abroad. You can't control them in the way you could in the 1830s and 40s. So by the 1870s and 80s, you get a very wide upsurge of anger at India's involvement in this trade and much more widespread critical reactions. And by the 1890s, really, the, the battle is now starting to be won by the, by the abolitionists, so to speak. But even at that time, even in the 1880s and 1890s, there are Indians who, I give a couple of examples of this in the book, there are Indians who say, well, the opium trade is a crucial element of, British, of the British Indian economy. It provides something like 10% of uh, British income at this point, British Indian income. If we take that away, it's going to have to be replaced by 
either taxes, higher taxes, or the reduction of all expenditure on public goods, on infrastructure, railways, and education. We should not do this. We should not give up this source of income unless Britain compensates us in some way. So there ends up being this very severe debate in the 1880s and 1890s between this public intellectual sphere that thinks this is disgraceful and the more nuts and bolts calculating administrative class that say, you know, giving, this, giving up this trade is going to actually be very damaging for our economy. Uh, and of course, uh, it, none of this, this debate becomes moot because the Chinese find their own way as they, as they always do. They find their own way of dealing with this horrendous uh, trade and, uh, and matters come to an end. So I wanted Indians to become aware of this, of this debate and of uh, both what's good and bad about that period. Right. Yeah. These are just two examples that the book sort of talks about as, as uh, events or episodes that would shape uh, how Indians would come to think of the West and how, to, how they would come to think of the path that India should follow. I mean, for, for the interest of time, I won't get into the others, but another great example is the idea of self-sufficiency, something that we've been speaking about recently. But just finally, Raul, I just wanted to, to sort of bring it to the current day. Of course, you know, every country or even every government likes to sort of create a, a narrative or a myth about its, its, its values or, you know, it's, or, or things that define its foreign policy. You hinted that in the book as well. Now everything's about a new India that's, that's standing up. This idea of a Vishwaguru, an India that has something to offer to the world. Every country obviously does this. The U.S. has this whole thing of being the shining city on the hill, et cetera, et cetera. But one thing that your book kind of tells us is that there wasn't ever one sort of dominant view. There were debates. There were people who had different views. So looking back at that late 19th century period and looking at today and the things that all the uh, things that are the sort of main pillars that you'd say define India's foreign policy, whether it's non-alignment or autonomy or whatever you call it, do you think that there are sort of values that have been consistent over this period of time or do you see it more as a kind of process that's always being revisited and, and debated and fluid? Yeah, I think there's there's one great big debate from the 19th century, you know, that has continuing deep resonance right up to this, this, this day. The, the book talks about these different topics as we've been discussing, whether it's racism or the opium trade or self-sufficiency, etc., to illuminate how Indians were engaging with the world. But the one overarching big debate from that period, I think, is still alive today and still sits at the heart of a great big conundrum in, in India's approach to the world. And the conundrum is this, that the, the, the kind of fundamental divide at the end of the 19th century and how Indians thought about the world was whether they were going to approach the world in a more moral, moralistic way. India has something to teach the world and that, that thing that it has to teach the world is some sort of moral or spiritual truth about coexistence or about pacifism or multiculturalism, you know, a kind of an early version of the European Union, etc. So there's there's been that very strong strain that really emerged around the 1870s, 1880s, as Indians confronted modernity, they, 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 they traveled to Europe, they were startled by examples of vice, drunkenness, prostitution, you know, street crime, things of these kinds. And by, and by the very unruly nature of, of Western democracy, the earliest Indians to go and study elections came back horrified, saying, 
you know, democracy seems like a giant big mess. People fight, they throw things at speakers, they shout down speakers, there's no reasoning, there's no debate the way we thought reasoning and uh, reasoning debate in the public sphere should work. So you get people coming back saying, well, you know, we thought modernity was great. We thought uh, this was, this is the direction we were heading in, but there's something really wrong with how modernity is playing out in the West and we must show the world another way. Tommy Vekaranda's speech is something that all of us would immediately think about when you you think about that kind of exactly that, that that's I mean that's you know one of the very obvious lodestars. There's many other figures, Keshav Chandrasen, etc. There are many other figures in this period, all of whom are both ambivalent. This is what's very important. They're both ambivalent about how other countries conduct, Western countries conduct their internal politics, ambivalent or hostile to how they conduct their external politics. So they're both troubled by Western modernity and they're troubled by Western colonialism. And so that gives rise to this idea that we are going to be different on both counts. We are going to be different. And it's very important to see that it's both things. It's not just we'll be, you know, nonviolent and in the international sphere. We're going to do everything differently. And there's another group which we've heard less about, you know, in the 20th century and are now reappearing. So that's what I wanted to connect up with the, with the book is to say that sometimes we talk about new India or, or the, the, the narrative since, let's say, the 1998 nuclear tests, or since the turn of this century, we talk about a new India that's more vigorous, that's more focuses on its interests more, that is, is, uh, is going to not play the role of moralizer on, on the international stage, but is instead going to play the role of a constructive, but interest-driven, interest-oriented actor. And what I wanted to point out is that this is exactly what the bulk, the vast majority of the Indian intelligentsia thought in the 19th century. They were kind of submerged or subdued when the rise of this more moralistic vision became, uh, you know, when that moralistic vision became the, the dominant feature. So if you look at the 1850s or 1860s, you see, you know, Indians that are, that are now starting to take part in uh, British India. They're joining the administration. They're still low-level functionaries or they're uh, members of the native states, and they all have very realistic views about international politics. They're not moralizers, they're not naive, etc. Many of them are travel well-connected, very aware of the world and how it works, very aware of the flows of international politics. Uh, they track which country is growing, which country is shrinking, and why, all of those sorts of things. That group, what we would call statesmen who think about statecraft, become more and more subdued. They become quieter as the 19th century goes, and the more moralistic figures become more and more prominent. And so there's a kind of funny thing that can happen when we think about our place in the world, and we only think about India starting in the early 20th century. Our assumption is this is how it always was. Moralizers and a more moralistic view of the world was the Indian way. That's the, the, the obvious natural uh, you know, starting point. And anything we do now is drifting away from this beautiful cardinal moment where everything was pristine and, and moral, and now we're becoming more realistic and quote-unquote immoral. And what I want to show is that's actually not true. You just need to cast your eyes back a few decades before that, and you will see that there has always been this debate uh, throughout the 19th century. And in fact, the more realistic figures were more dominant in the 19th century about what role India should play in the international system. So what we're seeing now is rebalancing away from the moralistic position back towards that more realistic position that we once, uh, that we once had as a more dominant uh, position. And that's, I think, right now at the heart of 
the, the choice we have to make. We are, as I say in the book, we are in the waiting room of history. We are at this moment, we have a big decision ahead of us because you can play both these arguments. You can say, I want to be moral and I'm also going to pursue my interests up to a certain point. In the early part uh, of the 20th century, India was protected from global pressures by the British and their colonies and their security umbrella. In the latter part of the 20th century, uh, non-alignment and the broader global conflict between the USSR and the US gave India some breathing space and it again didn't have to confront these issues. But now, as China rises, as India's own economy and military uh, expand, uh, there are going to be many more direct questions for India. It's going to have to take a position. It can't just say both things simultaneously. Uh, it will probably have to say and do some very difficult things, morally problematic or challenging things in the coming decades. So this great debate that's been around with us for almost now 200 years is coming up inevitably because of material developments. It's coming up to the moment of great resolution. So that's why I think the book still has deep resonance for today. We are coming up to the moment where we're going to have to answer the questions that our forefathers or predecessors were debating. Absolutely. And it's a really interesting period of history and fascinating voices that you've put together. Thank you so much, Rao, for speaking with us, the author of Raise a Fallen People, How 19th Century Indians Saw Their World and Shaped Ours. A real pleasure to have you on the Hindu Books Podcast. Thank you so much, Anand. A real pleasure. Thank you for those questions. Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as InFocus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at SOCMED4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 